We're in a series that we titled, Do You Hear What I Hear? It's based on the song, of course. And one of the verses, second verse, I think, says, Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, Do you hear what I hear? Way up in the sky, shepherd boy. A song, a song, high above the trees, with a voice as big as the sea. And I shared with you in the first uh, installment of the series that the writers of this song were attempting to connect the birth of the Prince of Peace with a prayer for world peace. Uh, The song was written back in uh, 1962 uh, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. As I've thought about this verse of this song, uh, who has a voice as big as the sea? Only God, only the one who created the sea. And so only he could be singing this song. And what is the song? Prophet Zephaniah wrote, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And one of my hopes is that you will take that to heart, that, that, that God himself rejoices over you, his people, with singing, not just corporately, but individually, that he takes great delight in you. He loves you. He enjoys you. And how cool to think that the God of the universe sings over us. We sing over our children. God sings over us. So the song of Christmas is a part of that song of love that God is always singing over his people. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a religious leader with real questions about what it means to be right with God. Came to visit Jesus under the cover of darkness, the original Nick at night. Um, Right in the middle of their conversation, Jesus uh, told Nicodemus about God's ultimate expression of of his love. And he said it this way For God expressed his love for the world in this way. He gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. And the gospel is contained in that one verse. God loves you, he gave his only Son. For you, that if you would believe in him, you would not face eternal destruction, eternal separation from God, but instead, he would give give to you the gift of eternal life with him. Life abundant in the here and now, life everlasting in the life to come. So the question we're asking in this series is, do you hear that song? Do you, do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what we hear? Do, do you hear what that everyone who has ever trusted in Christ down through the ages has heard? Do you hear the song? A couple of weeks ago at the start of this series, I mentioned that, that there are two elements that must be held in tension as we read the narrative surrounding Jesus' birth. And, and one is otherworldly mystery. And, and, and then this worldly history, otherworldly mystery and this worldly history. I, and I kind of like the mystery, don't you? I mean, I, I love the mystery of Christmas, and, and there's mystery here. 
that God took upon himself human flesh. How is that? The God of the universe, the creator of, of everything that's, that spun all, thousands upon thousands of galaxies into space. That God got little. Took upon himself human flesh, born as a baby. There's mystery there. It would be easy for us to relinquish the story of the birth of Jesus to the category of otherworldly mystery. We could leave it there because in this story, we, we encounter heaven intersecting earth. And we encounter the, the supernatural intersecting the natural and the divine intersecting the human. But the New Testament writers also meant for us to accept this story as otherworldly history, or this worldly history, I'm sorry. The people named are real people. Now, the places described are real places that you can still visit today. They're not fairy tale places. They're not the Shire or Rivendell. They're real places. Now, Pastor Steve just, and, and Rosie just got back from a visit to these places where these events took place. And, and if you're skeptical this morning about the veracity, the credibility of this story as the biblical writers presented it to us, uh, your best and most intellectually honest approach is to read the Gospels for yourselves uh, and, and just allow them to speak. And, and because they're God's word, there's a good chance you might hear God speaking to you on their pages. Now, I don't know why you're here this morning. It's Christmas. I know most of you, but maybe you're here because your mother-in-law made you come. I don't know. It's Christmas, right? She makes a pretty good whatever, pumpkin pie, figgy pudding. You want to get a bite, so you came. But if that's you, I hope that you'll listen this morning. I hope that you'll really take these things to heart and just take them seriously. Luke, who was a physician who traveled with and supported a man named the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, and in whose gospel this story is told, I intended to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus for a man named Theophilus. We don't know who he was. But in doing that, Luke was dependent on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Listen to what he wrote in the first four verses of his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. That you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. See, Luke's purpose was to record history. And in, and in doing that, he was entirely dependent on eyewitness testimony. Because Luke, unlike some of the biblical or New Testament writers, did not personally know Jesus as far as we know. We today are entirely dependent on those eyewitnesses and the testimony of the apostles themselves. The apostles being the 12 men who were closest to Jesus and who had walked with him for at least a full three years of his public ministry. And one of those apostles, whose name was Peter, had this to say about the work that, that he and his fellow apostles did in relating their experiences and observations and interpretations regarding this man Jesus. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter saying what... Luke is saying is that this we didn't make this stuff up. We're just reporting to you what we experienced and what we saw, what we came to understand about this man Jesus. So there's this otherworldly history about or mystery about the story and this worldly history about the story. And we've got to hold those in tension because both are necessary to understanding the story. And when we lean too far one way or the other, we, we end up in the wrong place. Well, let's read our scripture together, shall we? Why don't we stand and read our text for this morning? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. You may be seated. We could focus on these first several verses of Luke 2. They're familiar to us. I'd like this morning just to make this point that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. 700 years before Christ, 
the prophet Micah, saw the coming of the Messiah. And he wrote, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, it's no accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem as part of God's divine agenda. He made it known to a prophet 700 years early by the Holy Spirit. Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. It occurred to me while we were reading this just now that that all of the none of the names have been changed of the cities. Nazareth is still Nazareth. Bethlehem is still Bethlehem. Jerusalem is still Jerusalem. So how to get Mary and Joseph, who by all accounts, by all indications, all the clues in the text were not wealthy people. How do they get the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem? For us, we would think it a short distance, but on foot or by other means of ancient transportation, it was a daunting journey. But God used a census of the Roman Empire to force that to happen. It was ordered by Caesar Augustus. And and the end result of, of that was that Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem for the census, but more importantly, just in time, apparently, for Jesus to be born. And when she did, and she laid him in a manger, his birth was announced by angels to shepherds outside of Bethlehem who were tending flocks through the night. It's interesting to me, and we're going to look at this on Christmas Eve, but it's interesting to me that that Jesus chose to reveal himself first to the humblest of people. Which tells us that the gospel, the, the salvation that Jesus brings is for everyone. Not just for the rich and the famous and the ups and ins, but the poor and the obscure and the down and outs. Maybe you've seen the 1997 film Contact that starred Jodie Foster. Uh, her character's name was Ellie Arroway, and she was passionately committed to the idea that we're not alone in the universe. And so she became involved, dedicated her life to the SETI program, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, listening with these huge dishes for radio signals from distant space, hoping to detect signs of alien life. Maybe we ought to search for intelligent life on this planet. But the irony in all of that is that Arroway could have saved a great deal of time and energy listening for something she could have found by simply opening a nightstand drawer in any hotel. Isn't that right? Gideons. The Bible is a message from the heavens. The transcendent God speaking to us on purpose. And in words that we can understand, not just in vague radio waves or static And in the vicinity of Bethlehem on that particular night, God lit up the sky and spoke powerfully 
of the entry of his eternal son into our world in human flesh. And he made that announcement through an army of angels. You might ask, well, what in heck are angels anyway? Well, they're not in heck. Some of them are. But angels are powerful spirit beings created by God, created before the creation of the heavens and the earth to serve him, to bring him glory and honor. They are not automatons. They're not robots. They are represented in the Bible as personal beings possessing intellect, will, and emotions. You might note that in every encounter between angels and humans recorded in the Bible, the first words out of the mouth of the angel are, Fear not. Don't be afraid. The reason is that on most occasions, the first emotion elicited by an encounter with an angel is just that, intense fear. Sudden terror. They just kind of show up, right? It's like turning around and feeling like no one was there a moment ago. (laughs) What I want you to understand this morning, and, and just to frame our minds, is these aren't greeting card angels. These aren't Hallmark angels or American greetings angels or day spring angels. They're... Neither are they cartoon angels. They're not far-side angels. Not precious moments angels. Not even Charlie's angels. <laughs> so what are they? What are angels? Well, we've seen that they're powerful spirit beings, and they are spirit. But Bible tells us that angels have four basic functions. First, angels are messengers. They're messengers. The Hebrew word translated angel in the Old Testament is malach, which means messenger. The Greek word angelos, or angel, in the New Testament also means, surprise, messenger. So on countless occasions throughout the pages of Scripture, angels are sent from heaven for the purpose of delivering a word from God to human beings. Secondly, angels are ministers. And actually, you could substitute for that word servants, but then you'd mess up my alliteration. They're tasked not only with serving God, but they're tasked with serving us, the people of God, those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.17, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels are messengers and they're ministers, and then third, they're worshipers. Angels are worshipers. In both Old and New Testaments, it's recorded that God allowed various people to see and hear angels worshiping him. And one of those revelations was to the Apostle John, and he records this vision in the very last book of the Bible, where he writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, 
saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What an amazing picture that is. He says, Myriads of, upon myriads and thousands of thousands. Those are big numbers. <laughs> because myriads is commonly assumed by scholars to mean something like millions upon millions. So millions of millions and thousands of thousands, that's a lot of angels. And the question is not how many of them can dance on the head of a pin. So they're messengers and ministers and worshipers, and then they're warriors. They're warriors. I don't have time this morning, but for an amazing description of angels as warriors, read 2 Kings 6, 8 through 19, if you just want to jot that down. 2 Kings 6, 8 through 19. It's the passage where the phrase chariots of fire comes from. It's an amazing story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. When the angels appeared to shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem that night, we see them in three roles, messengers, worshipers, and warriors. They're described as an angel army. How how do we know they're warrior angels? (laughs) Well, we're not told, but there must have been something about their appearance that spoke to the shepherds and gave them the impression that these guys were dressed in battle array. And, and we shouldn't be surprised. The Bible tells us, Revelation is one of those places, that the night that Jesus was born, there was war going on in the heavens. And we should be surprised, it would seem, if angels didn't make an appearance at Jesus' birth, because angels played a significant role in his entire life and ministry. For example, at the close of his temptation in the wilderness, at the very beginning of his public ministry, angels came and ministered to him in the aftermath of that terrible temptation. Strengthened him, ministered to him. Angels were present at his resurrection from the dead. They were present at his ascension into heaven. When he comes again for the church, Paul tells us that that he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. I'm not sure what any of that means. Other than that, I think it's going to be loud. It's going to be loud enough to wake the dead. And we've seen the past two Sundays how angels, in their role as messengers, prepared each of the key players for their part in the entry of God's Son into the world. In a passage that we didn't look at this month, in, in Luke, early part of Luke chapter 1, an angel, the angel Gabriel, appeared to a man named Zechariah, a priest, and prepared him for his role as the father of the baby who would become John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel also prepared Mary to become the mother of Messiah Jesus. An angel prepared Joseph in a dream for his role of being the earthly father of the Savior. Angels appeared appeared and prepared some nameless shepherds. Nameless, faceless, obscure shepherds outside Bethlehem for their role as eyewitnesses to the birth of the Savior. And later on, angels would lead Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus to flee to Egypt 
to protect him from the murderous King Herod. But on this night, the night of Jesus' birth, outside of Bethlehem, an angel announced the identity and the mission of Jesus to some shepherds. And this is what I'd like for us to focus our thoughts on in the time we have left. And an angel of the Lord, verse 9 of chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, can you, can you imagine? I mean, you're, you're just hanging out, got nowhere to go. Sheep aren't doing much. In the first service, I said that sheep were bleating softly, and someone thought I said bleeding. (laughs) And suddenly, the sky just opens up in blazing light. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The the word that's used there literally means that it just surrounded them, that they were surrounded in the glory of the Lord. It wasn't just like a, a theatrical spotlight, right? The glory of the Lord shone around them, and it enveloped them. The Bible tells us that God dwells in ineffable, glorious light. This is the glory of the Lord, not the glory of the angels. The angels reflect the glory of the Lord because they stand in his presence. It's recorded in the early part of John's book of uh, the Revelation that he encountered the, the risen and glorified Christ And the face of Christ shone like the sun. The shepherds saw, were surrounded by, were enveloped in the glory of the Lord. We sing songs that say, show us your glory. (laughs) Really? Because you'll have to change your pants. I mean, it's not a pleasant experience. It, it, these guys were terrified. And we kind of think, well, they were kind of scared, but they're looking up at the angels, and it was all warm and starry. No. These guys were at heart attack level. It is certain that they would have had to look away, and it's no wonder that they were terrified. And making his announcement to them, then the angel used three titles for the newborn Jesus. And it's interesting for those of us who are kind of biblical geeks, and yet, in, in terms of what is being communicated here to us, it's incredibly interesting because they combine three titles, the angel combines three titles for Jesus that are not used in combination anywhere else in the New Testament. The first thing that the angel announced about this child that was born is that he is the Savior. He is the Savior. The angel who spoke with Mary and the angel who appeared to Joseph were sure 
to say to each of them that they were to call their son Jesus. The commonality between the two announcements to Mary and then to Joseph is this one thing, that they were to call his name Jesus because he is the one who would save his people from their sins. When the angel informed them of a Savior who was born to them, he was saying precisely the same thing that had been said to Mary and Joseph. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua, or Joshua. And it literally means God saves, or God is salvation. The angel said, you shall name your son God is salvation. I read to you John 3.16 earlier, Jesus speaking to his friend Nicodemus. The very next verse says this, For God, Jesus speaking, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, which some of us have believed and felt, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. He came to rescue you. He came to deliver you from your stuff and from the sin that condemned you. To his disciples, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm looking at a room full of them. And they're looking at another one. In Jesus Christ, God sent the only one who could solve the predicament of our separation from God by offering himself as the sacrifice by which our sin could be forgiven. Because he was one of us, he could die in our place as our substitute. Because he is the sinless son of God, he can be our savior. There is no other savior. The other pastors and I were at lunch this past week. Got into a conversation with a a gentleman who heard that we were Christians and had an interesting conversation, but he, he said that typical thing that people often say, well, all the religions are just exactly alike. And I said, except for Christianity. Because everything in the Christian faith rests on this one thing, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead after he was crucified on a Roman cross. It's because of that that he is our Savior. God sent Jesus to save us from ourselves, our stupid selves, our sinful selves. He came to save us from our sin. He is, secondly, the Christ. Unto you was born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ. I remember thinking when I was a kid that Christ must be Jesus' last name. You know, it just kind of makes sense. Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Jesus Christ, yeah. It was only later that I came to understand that, that the name, the, the, the word Christ is a title, not a name. 
Christ, Christos, is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. It's the same word. Both of them mean the anointed one. And the angel wanted the shepherds to understand that the child born in Bethlehem is the one for whose coming they and all Israel had been waiting and longing. The one to whom all the law and the prophets had been pointing for thousands of years. If you're a videophile and you hear the word one, you think of Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, right? The one. And there's a messianic dimension to his character, isn't there? You are the one that we've all been waiting for. The one whose coming they and all Israel had been waiting and longing for, the one to whom all the law and prophets had been pointing for thousands of years. This must have been on the mind of Philip Brooks when he penned those words in O little town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Third, the angel says of this child that is to be born that he is the Lord. And of the three titles, this one is left mostly unexplained in context. But the crowning declaration of the angel is that the child is not just a merely human savior. Because the word savior could be used with a, with a little s, a lowercase s, and it could be applied to all kinds of people who are deliverers, search and rescue teams, saviors. And Jesus is Savior with a capital S. So he's not merely a human Savior he's not, or a merely human Messiah, Christ. In declaring that he's the Lord, and this is, this is where the uniqueness of what the, the angel is saying, in declaring that he is the Lord, the angel identifies Jesus as very God of very God, not a Lord, but the Lord. The one to whom All of us is accountable. Not one option among many, but the one to whom each of us must give an account. Notice one last thing that the angel said. He does not say he would become the Lord, but that he is the Lord. Songwriter Joseph Moore captured this truth when on Christmas Eve in 1818 he wrote, Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus Lord at thy birth. Jesus Lord at thy birth. If seeing and hearing from one angel and beholding the glory of the Most High God and experiencing sheer terror and panic, the likes of which those shepherds had never experienced or would ever experience again, wasn't enough for one night. Luke then records that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The writer of Hebrews quoted Deuteronomy 32.43 when he wrote, 
when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so they were. And so they were. An army of angels worshipped him. And as they did that, they declared two outcomes of his incarnation. By the way, the word incarnation means enfleshment. There's that word carn in there, like chili con carne. If you need help thinking about that. Chili with meat. The enfleshment of God. The incarnation of God in human flesh. That's for you, Casey. Thank you. <laughs> the first outcome is that God gets glorified. God gets glorified. Glory to God in the highest. This otherworldly mystery is the climax of the story. God is glorifying himself in the incarnation of his son through whom he's about to destroy the works of the devil. Reverse the curse. Forgive our sin. Reconcile us to God. Paul wrote that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Second outcome is this, that those with whom God is pleased receive his peace. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This worldly history. This worldly history. I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible. It's the one that Jesus used. If it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. I first memorized verse 14 this way, the latter part of it, and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. But it can be a confusing way of translating this verse. Because if you read it, on earth, peace, goodwill to men, you can come away from that with a somewhat universalistic or humanistic notion that Jesus came to grant peace and goodwill to absolutely everyone. And so we have Christmas cards that are sent out that call for peace, that call for world peace, that call for personal peace, that may have nothing to do with Jesus. That's not what it actually says. The peace the angels are announcing is peace with God. The New International Version probably translates this most accurately. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Well, who are they? (laughs) Let me put it this way. Peace with God is a free gift not to everyone, but only to those who receive him. Jesus comes for all, but not all respond to or benefit from his coming. The Apostle John, in the opening of his gospel, said of Jesus that he came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, we're not all children of God. 
The adoption comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said this, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Do you hear what he's saying? The peace that the angel announced comes to those who receive the son, the child that he announced. Having been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And when we put our faith in Christ, we come into that place of undeserved privilege. We stand in grace. We stand in his favor. Not because of anything we have done, but because we have trusted in what Christ has done. Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And that search and rescue mission can be traced necessarily through the cross. The cross was not just a mere unfortunate event or an accident. Jesus came to bear our sins in his body at the cross. And so the Bible says we receive his favor when we put our faith in him. What does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? It means to receive him as the angels announced him as your savior. The only one who can solve the predicament of your separation from God because of your sin. Not anyone else's sin, but yours. Jesus came not just to be born in Bethlehem, but to die 33 years later on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem in your place, making full and final payment for all, all of your sin. Not someone else's sin, your sin. And when he died, you were on his mind. You were on his heart. You might say that you, in your sin, broke his heart, but he died willingly for you at the cross. And so putting your faith in him means transferring your trust from all the stuff that you think you can depend on, your goodness, your morality, your religious involvement, your church membership, your baptism, your cleverness, your cuteness, your ability, you think, to persuade God that you lived a pretty good life. And you take all of that and you transfer your faith away from all of that to this one thing, which is what Christ accomplished at the cross for you. 
And you say, God, I receive what you offered through Jesus, and I acknowledge that he died there in my place. Forgive my sins. Come into my life. Unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Are you hearing the song? Will you receive him? Will you put your faith in him? I pray that you will. And and what better time of year to do that? What greater gift could you receive at Christmas than the forgiveness of your sins and the, the gift of eternal life? No greater gift than that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this season of the year. We thank you for this amazing story this otherworldly mystery that intersects this worldly history. Lord, we, uh, we're amazed at all of it. Terrified in our sin, but glorying in your grace through the Savior who is Christ the Lord. We thank you for the great gift that you gave to us, that indescribable gift. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.